0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Joan Didion referred to California as the golden land, the place where the dream was teaching the dreamers how to live, a metaphor for some larger insidious process at work in American history, one that became a parable of the American penchant for reinvention and for discarding history and starting tabula rosa. That may have once been true for California, But today, in which California is the fifth-largest economy in the world, what happens in California doesn't stay in California. The state's actions and leadership often resonate around the globe in ways that makes its history important. And one of the things that's so important to that history is the Brown family and its relationship to California. In fact, in the 59 years since 1959, 24 of those years... I've seen a Brown running the state of California. The Brown family history is part of who we are as a state. They reflect how we've evolved. A reminder that, again, as Didion said, it had better work out here because it's where we run out of continent. We're going to talk about that combined history today with my guest, Miriam Powell. She's the author of the previous book, The Crusades of Cesar Chavez, which was a National Book Critics Circle Award finalist. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning editor and reporter who spent 25 years at Newsday and the Los Angeles Times. And it is my pleasure to welcome Miriam Powell back to this program to talk about her latest work, The Browns of California, The Family Dynasty that Transformed a State and Shaped a Nation. Miriam Powell, thanks so much for joining
1: us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Delight to have you here. I want to talk first about some of the themes that that you touch on and and uncovered in the course of your reporting of this, some of the themes that parallel both the state and the Brown family as they evolved over the years.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm so glad that you framed it that way because that is exactly what I wanted people to come away from the book uh, with, and it's what gave me the idea to do a collective biography as history, because there is so much, I mean, a, a, as you pointed out, the Browns played an enormous role in shaping the state, but there's also so much about their family history that parallels the arc of the state itself, and, and I tried to write the book by sort of inter, to interweave those stories by identifying those key themes. And um, just parenthetically, the book actually starts with uh, Jerry Brown's great-grandfather, August Shuckman, who arrived in California in 1852. So we have the spark of the four generations. And um, very briefly, I would say that you know some of the themes specifically would be um, the, that idea of California that you alluded to early on in the sense of how it was formed, how it, in, in the words of Carrie McWilliams, the lights went on in a blaze, you know, after the gold rush and have never dimmed, that's a paraphrase, um, the, the the idea of the land of opportunity and what draw, what has drawn so many people to California over the decades, and then things like the, the importance of higher education and the influence on it in the University of California, the state as a land of immigrants and the significance of immigration here, um and and the outdoor world and the environment and its importance in California, which is so different than in, in many other parts of the country like the East Coast.
0: Talk a little bit about Pat Brown and his emergence into politics. How did he come to the political world?
1: Pat Brown grew up in, in extremely modest circumstances. He was the son of um, both second-generation immigrants, one Irish, one German, born in San Francisco in 1905, a year before the earthquake, Um, and just your classic old-style politician who began to run for things when he was in junior high school and loved to be around people, loved the political world and uh, began life as a Republican, ran his first race for assembly unsuccessfully as a Republican when he was 23 years old, became a Roosevelt Democrat, and was first elected to the office of San Francisco District Attorney. That was his first successful race in 1943. Uh, his son, Jerry, was five years old at the time. And from there, progressed through San Francisco. The San Francisco political world became attorney general and then governor in 1958.
0: It's interesting to see how he came to represent, certainly steered the state through, but also in a way came to represent that post-war enthusiasm of California.
1: Absolutely, he was that. He was a, just an ebullient personality, and and sort of the perfect leader for that period of time in those post-war years when California was growing um, during the decade of the, of the the fifties and sixties, it was growing by a thousand people a day who were coming here and a thousand babies who were being born. The combination of that post-war migration plus the baby boom, you know, the growth at a phenomenal rate. I mean, the amount of construction of schools and roads and, and, cities that were needed to accommodate that boom was enormous. And he had, he said that this this just expansive, gregarious, ebullient personality that was perfect for that, for that era. And that optimism, that ability to say, you know, we can come to an agreement between North and South that will allow us to construct the state water project, which he was very instrumental in, in pushing through, early in his first term, Um, and the university system, the master plan. I mean, there were three entire campuses that were designed and launched and and nearly completed under his tenure, uh, which is just, you know, sort of remarkable to think about today how fast (laughs) things happened.
0: What did he understand? What did Pat Brown understand about the future of California, I mean, how much of it mm-hmm. was being caught up in the moment in all of this enthusiasm as we're talking about, all these things that needed to be done given those boom years, and and was there any part of it that was reflective as to where all this was headed for California?
1: Well, I think water would be the example there where he was very determined to um, push through the state water project in order to provide water to Southern California, which was absorbing the bulk of the growth at that point. But still, it was a, a period when the, the power and the, and the, and the weight uh, within the state was just shifting from north to south. And... He was, even at the time, there were people who sort of said, you know, it's a desert, you shouldn't have that much water there, we don't want to encourage people to live in a place that's not naturally hospitable, but Pat's position was they're going to move there with or without water. And, you know, we need to have water there because they're going to come anyway. And so I think while he was not a visionary in a kind of a classic sense in terms of being, you know, perhaps not the kind of visionary that his son was, he did have that longer horizon and say this has to be done to plan for the state. And similarly, in terms of the higher education system, you know, we, we must have universities that are going to be able to educate this incredible baby boom that is, that is coming up. So I think that he did take and some some actions that uh, you know we're living with the, the state master plan was subtitled nineteen sixty to nineteen seventy five and it's still the governing document on all three systems of higher education today for the most part, so he did foresee uh, that that enormous growth and growth at that point also was considered a good thing for for the most part, so uh, there was a, a different view of the expansiveness at that point in time.
0: You mentioned the vision aspect of it. it. It's interesting that even Jerry Brown, and he was, what, 19 or something when his father became governor, that, that he—and you portray this in, in a letter, I think, that, that he wrote to his father when he was thinking about running for governor as to how he saw his father, how he saw California, how he saw his father might make a contribution—
1: Mm -hmm. So Jerry Brown, um, as many people, but maybe some of your younger listeners don't remember, was a seminarian and went into a Jesuit seminary for three and a half years um, from 19... 56 through the beginning of 1960. So he was actually in the seminary when his father ran for and was elected governor in 1958. And the, there are a series of letters that he writes, even though he was cloistered and shut off from the political world, he managed to follow politics even then. Um, and uh, he, he was very, because of being a, a Jesuit seminarian at the time, sort of counseled his father about... Uh, how he could, you know, in what capacity, whether it was for governor or senate, and that was a big debate at the time. But Pat was trying to decide what, which, which race to to make. You know how he could best serve his country and state. And uh, I do think that for for the differences between the generations and the personalities and so forth, that there are, there are common values in one of them throughout the Brown family, um, including other siblings and and. and, and names that were less familiar with because they played less of a role in our state political system, that that value of public service was something that was very much sort of imbued in the family, that idea that, that you have a responsibility to, to, to be of service to your state, and that sort of affection for California that was very genuine and, and, and belief in the importance of of public service.
0: Talk about Pat Brown's affection for California. How he saw the state.
1: He he was you know I always say that he it's hard to find anyone who rivaled Pat Brown in his affection and his chauvinism for California. He just simply you know embodied in many ways the idea of California exceptionalism. Uh, that there was sort of no place on earth one would rather live. <laughs> he did travel extensively in his later age, but um, he just really, it was the people and the land. He grew up as a child spending a lot of time in Yosemite and, and then later on in the Russian River, had a had a real affinity, went backpacking in the wild at, at a fairly advanced age and brought his family when he, they, he and his wife Bernice had four children and they spent summers in either Yosemite or the Russian River and really transmitted that to his family as well, um, that sort of sense of affection for the place. And he. The, the classic story about him is that he used to love to fly in the state propeller plane, which was called the Grizzly when he was governor. And there are photos of him peering out the window with binoculars and just looking at the land. Um, he famously wrote a letter to Ronald Reagan, who defeated him in 1966 and succeeded him as governor, criticizing him for getting rid of the state plane. Uh, you know, the propeller plane, because he wanted to fly in a jet and saying, you can't see the land that way. You can't get a sense of the place. Um, so he, he really was embodied that idea.
0: And to what extent was that conveyed to Jerry? How was, talk about his relationship to the state of California.
1: You know, I I, I think it's hard to underestimate the degree to which one absorbs things by osmosis as a child and both, both that sense of California and also of the political world um, that was the house that Jerry grew up in, you know, he was, his father was first elected to office in 1943 successfully, but he had run for district attorney four years earlier in 1939. Jerry was one year old. So, you know, his entire life growing up was in a house that was all about politics and all about California um, and, and and that's you know very much something that became part of him and, and the rest of his family, and the, the I think one of the examples of that is the land in Calusa County where Jerry's great grandfather August Schuckman ended up. He ended up as a uh, as an innkeeper on a ranch on a ranch in Calusa, um, which is called the Mountain House. And that land, which he acquired um, in the 1870s, remained in the family ever since. Pat Brown and his brother managed to sort of scrape together enough money and put together some, get together some, some wealthier friends to help them to buy the land when it, uh, when their grandfather died. And uh, that is the place on which Sherry Brown is building his retirement home and has been spending a lot of time because that is the ancestral home. And he feels a real attachment to that land and to the ability to walk in the place where his grandmother was born. That um, means a lot to him.
0: What sense did Jerry Brown have of how California had changed when he became governor? How, how different a place it was From that California that his father became governor of in 1959?
1: Well, I think perhaps one of the best ways to convey that is that there was a book by E.F. Schumacher called Small is Beautiful. Um, That was required reading for his staff when he became governor in 1975. Um, He very much embraced the idea that. This was an era of limits. It was no longer that expansive world, eight years of Reagan in between, and it was a very different world and a sense that, um, you know, a lot of the problems that people had come to California to escape had followed them here. Smog had become an enormous problem at that point. Traffic was a problem. Development was a problem. Um, and and financial, the financial resources of the state, which for Pat had seemed you know, limitless, um, and by the way, he left a, a, a fairly large um, deficit for his successor, You know, all of that was changed and the mood of the country was changed, and Sherry Brown... Very much um, embraced that, uh, much to somewhat to the distress of his father. You know, Prop 13 was passed in 1978, which was sort of in the middle, just before Jerry ran for re-election for his second term, and there was that sense very strongly that um, that that we were in a different era, and he certainly. Um, talked about that, embraced it, and uh, on an environmental level as well. I mean, when Pat Brown was governor, there was no sequa, there were no, There was no environmental movement. So you were able to build roads and bridges and tunnels and water aqueducts without any kinds of environmental reviews. And, of course, that had changed also by the 1970s. So very different landscape.
0: Do you think in the case of both of them at the times they were governor, that they were more reflective of the times or helped shape the times in California?
1: I think you have to say both. You know, I, I, I mean, it's difficult to separate that out. Um, as we talked about, certainly Pat Brown was a, very much a, a product of his times and, and embodied that spirit. But also, you know, the, the, the legacy that he left in a very physical sense was incredibly instrumental in shaping the state and future generations and um and I think one could sort of parse Cherry Brown the same way uh, in in many ways, he has a. A much longer horizon um, than than his father, and certainly than most politicians. I mean, I think that one of the things that makes him unusual, and there are many things that make him unusual as a political figure, but one of them is that he really is very far-sighted and always has been. And sometimes he I mean, he sees different. He, his vision has changed over the years, but that ability to look beyond the next election and to really be looking far ahead and to say early on, you know, every child is going to have a computer, it's going to be like having a pen, um, in the, you know, so, so he was sort of an early adapter of the, the technology that was going to reshape our society in the state, or, uh, certainly solar power is a, Good example of something that he talked about a lot the first time around, and people thought that was a little wacky, and now of course you know, it's utterly mainstream. So I think that um, he is a product of his times, as we all are. And I, I mean, I think to some degree it's probably a tautology because you don't get elected to a high office unless you represent the the mood of the times. But certainly. Both of them did a lot to shape you know, both the physical and in, more intangible aspects of the state.
0: Talking about shaping, one of the things that seemed to be the most profound for Jerry was his time as mayor of Oakland. Talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it, it, the, there, there are two things that if you ask any of his close friends or people who followed him closely, the difference between his first two terms from 75 to 82 and his current Uh, terms that he's finishing now, the answers are Anne, who is his wife. He married Anne Gust in in 2005. You know, Anne and Oakland. And he spent um, eight years as mayor of Oakland, was elected in 1998 for the first time. And that experience of running a city for someone who had jumped into politics at a very high level because of his name, um, or his name enabled him to, to make that that leap to statewide office in 1970, he became secretary of state after only one year on the Los Angeles community college board, not a jump that most people could make. Um, He skipped that whole sort of phase of having any experience with local government, which is more common for, for politicians to have. And for him, that, that, that he, For someone who focuses as intently as he does on whatever he happens to be doing at the moment, um, bringing that intensity to Oakland, to the issues of housing, of development, of urban redevelopment, and particularly of the criminal justice system, uh, a major problem then and to, to a lesser degree now in Oakland, um, really shaped his thinking about state policies and about how Policies and laws that are made in Sacramento are uh, affect people on the on a, on a local level and how they they how they play out sort of on the ground, so to speak
0: It's interesting when you know people used to try and write about Richard Nixon years ago you know Nixon's answer to authors always was don't put me on the couch. What was it mm-hmm. like talking to Jerry Brown about this legacy? You spent uh, quite a bit of time with him in writing this. um
1: so for me, I mean you know, a lot I, I did a lot of work on the book before I really talked to him. I had one conversation with him early on and then I actually didn't talk to him for a couple of years while I researched the book largely in archives and to, to a degree also talking to people. And so in my conversations with him I was really interested in seeing trying to understand um what experiences were important to him. I mean, I find it interviewing people in general. People will talk about the things that matter to them. Um, So that was one of the things that interested me. And in sort of seeing how his mind works and what kinds of leaps it makes, Um, one often has pretty nonlinear conversations with him, which were very useful for my purposes, (laughs) because I wanted to see the kinds of connections that he made and where he went from one subject to another and what, who were the people and the and the events and the issues that he would come back to? Um, he has a very good memory, very accurate memory very also another unusual aspect of him as a politician is that um, most politicians kind of invent their own stories at some point and you know sort of uh, are prone to embellishment. His father was certainly one of those people and and there was a one has to parse a lot of what Pat Brown said to kind of, you know, fact check it. Um, Sherry Brown, as he said to me at one point, does not like embellishment, and I think that's his his personality and his Jesuit training that he's very um, very fact based, and so that was very helpful for me as a researcher and historian.
0: It's easy, as, as we've talked about, to kind of pigeonhole Pat Brown as, as reflective of those post-war boom years in California. And certainly, Jerry Brown's first uh, tenure as governor reflected the 60s and so much that was happening in that period. How does he see this second tenure, the second period as governor? And, and, and what is that reflective of as he sees it, as you see it?
1: Huh, okay. That's a, it's. It's always harder to talk about the present, and certainly for me, mm-hmm. I'm very aware as a journalist and historian. I'm very aware of the the phrase of journalism is the first cut of history. So I've tried it to avoid. I've tried to avoid any kind of real evaluation of his second term in that sense. Of of, of, of there are things that are happening now that I think are going to play out, and it's going to be up to future historians to look back on it. So, but with that caveat, I would say. You know California, as you said early on, plays this you know, enormous role now and to some degree, it always has, but as the world 's fifth largest economy in this incredibly technologically driven world right now, um, California 's policies are, are important in shaping um, actions and, and policies throughout the country and throughout the world. And so I think that he has been a leader for that time. If you look at climate change, for example, and in the environmental sphere as a whole, the way in which California has set policies and played a, a leading role in those efforts, particularly climate change, um, is is a good example of the times that we are in and the role that the state plays. Um, I would, you know, single out climate change and perhaps immigration as another. Um, very key area: the demographic changes in California, which would have been, you know, so enormous and profound over the decades. The idea that California is a majority-minority or whatever the term we use, but you know, it, the the percentage of Latinos and Asians in California and the degree to which, although immigration has slowed, they have been in an enormous force in shaping the state. And and Sherry's. Um, I think if you look, for example, at some of the strongest language that he has used in the wake of the election of President Trump um, was about protecting immigrants in this state, regardless of their legal status and how important that is to him. Um, I think that's also a, a core value, both of the family and goes back generations, um, but also a reflection of california 's sort of role as the the center in of, of that particular sort of fight because the demographic changes in California tend to spread east as they have uh, from here, so I would say sort of immigration and and, and and the environment being two areas in which you can really see that he, as a leader has um, you know, he pushed through for example um, was instrumental in the 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 bill. In, in signing and encouraging the legislature to pass the bill that allowed undocumented immigrants to get driver's licenses. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is a, a good example of something, that, you know, very reflective of the times. Are
0: you surprised that other members, I mean, certainly Kathleen made a stab at it, but other members mm-hmm. of the Brown family did, have not pursued politics to, to the same degree?
1: Not really. I mean, Kathleen did have a, a a major political career really as a school board member and then as state treasurer and then in her unsuccessful but very uh, prominent run for governor in 1994 against Pete Wilson, which was the year of Prop 187, again, back to the immigrant theme, um, and and she lost in part because of her very strong stand against Prop 187. Um, so she has been a, a major figure in her own, a political figure in her own right. Um, am I surprised by the others? Not really. Um, you know, there were, Pat and Bernice had four children. Their oldest two um, did not go into politics on their own. Their oldest daughter, Barbara, in fact, very explicitly rejected that world and wanted to have a very separate identity. Um, uh, and and the, the, her... Sister Cynthia uh, was a very big supporter of all of the political Browns, um, but but did not pursue a career on her own. In the next generation, uh, Pat Brown's grandchildren, his oldest granddaughter Kathleen Kelly is a judge in San Francisco. Has been very involved in juvenile justice issues, um, and and a couple of the other grandchildren are teachers. So that. I think those values of public service and also attachment to the outdoor world were passed on, uh, but not in, in the, 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 not that sort of in, – in a way, I think that reflects the difference in this dynasty from, say, the Kennedys, where there mm-hmm. was much more of a sense that you were born to that particular seat in Congress or in the House of Representatives or whatever. Um, it, it was almost an entitlement and that's not been the the pattern or the history of the Brown dynasty.
0: I would assume dynasty is not a word that, that Jerry Brown particularly cares for. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I don't think he has. This, i I hesitate to speak on this because <laughs> I have not. I don't think I, we ever discussed it directly. But I don't think he has a problem with that concept. I think he sees himself very much. I mean, he's very interested and has spent a lot of time tracing his own family history. And um, I think he sees the role that his family has played in the state as, as, very, as a very important one. And I think he sees his career as part of that trajectory. So I don't think he would have the same issues with that word as he does with legacy, which is a different, right. What? Um, a different concept.
0: Right. What is it about that idea of a legacy that he okay. seems so uncomfortable with?
1: Good. I'm glad you asked. So here's the thing about legacy as far as he's concerned, that a legacy is something that you leave when you stop being an actor on the stage, when you stop doing things. And he does not intend to stop doing things until he's dead. Therefore, he doesn't have a legacy now. He will have a legacy at some future time, and he won't be around to see, to, to, you know, to, to, to hear about that. But to him, legacy is something that happens when you stop being you know, active in the political and, and, and social and moral world.
0: How do you think that he will do in retirement? What, what, what do you think we'll expect to hear
1: from him? I think he will find plenty of things to keep himself occupied and interested. I mean, he has that sort of uh, relentless, restless intellectual curiosity and focus and sort of intensity, and he will continue to find things and, and surround himself with people who um, he can find, who he finds interesting and, and stimulating to talk to, but he will continue to be a voice and, and a leading voice in sort of trying to uh, mobilize people to combat what he sees as the two, you know, what are the two existential threats to our existence, climate change and nuclear proliferation. He has been a very, you know, active and powerful voice on those issues and will continue to do so. And I, I think he will cons- explore everything about Calusa and his ranch that he possibly can until he has exhausted that subject, and then he'll find another one.
0: And does he have any regrets? Did, are there any regrets across the board about not Succeeding at higher office,
1: I, I'm. I, I mean, I assume you know. How could there not be regrets right. on some level when runs for president three times? It means you really want to be president. Um, but I, I don't sense. I personally don't sort of sense any discontent. I think he. If you look at the role that he has played, and perhaps this is also a reflection of, of of the the, the point you made earlier about sort of how leaders embody and represent their times that his role on an issue like climate change has been, um, and in some ways as sort of the anti-Trump, has been to be the leading Democrat in the country running the world's fifth largest economy. So that's not a, uh, you know, I, I, I think he's pretty content with that perch.
0: And finally, as you, as you talk to him, who did he, who does he admire in the political realm? Who Besides his father who who did he look up to? who were models for him?
1: um you know, I don't have a good offhand answer on that. I'd have to think about it more. Um, I certainly admired Earl Warren. I mean I think that as you know in terms of being governor he the governors whom he looked up to and admired were his father and Earl Warren and Hiram Johnson. those are sort of the outstanding governors of of the state. In many ways, and, and the one thing that they all embodied, which I think he has tried to emulate, is a sense of a spirit of bipartisanship also that reflects both a sort of different role in the much lesser role that political parties play in California, but also that embrace. Of all of California, that if you are Governor, you represent everyone, including the people who didn 't vote for you, that while Republican he has been very respectful of mm-hmm. the idea that there are Republicans in this state, they may not be a major political force, but the, you know, they matter too, they are part of the state, they count, they need to be reached out to and listened to and and so I think that he um, that you know he very much respects that tradition of governing. In, in the spirit of, of the party of California, as the, the late great historian Kevin Starr called it, um, and, and that is something that has been very important to him, and those are the three sort of governors whom he has uh, admired and sought to emulate in that respect.
0: Miriam Powell, her book is The Browns of California, the family dynasty that transformed a state and shaped a nation. Miriam, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you.